Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is Christian Butner, aka The Fat Rat, who's a producer, DJ, and musician based mainly out of Germany. Chris has millions of listeners of his music from all over the world and has accumulated billions of plays so far. And he did this all without a major record label, all while giving his music away completely for free. In this episode, we talk about how he started in the world of classical music and then transitioned into electronic music much later, how he taught himself his electronic music production skills, why he releases basically all of his music for free and lets people use his music in their projects, mostly without needing to pay, why he steers artists away from signing with major labels, and much more. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Christian Butner, aka The Fat Rat. So one thing I know is that you got started doing music with playing piano, singing in choirs, and even wanting to conduct and all that sort of stuff. And now you produce, you do live performances, those sorts of things. And it, was there a pivotal moment when you veered away from classical and went down this electronic path instead? Yes, there was a pivotal moment. It was a very painful one because I participated in a piano competition and I practiced like four hours per day. I still went to school at that time and stood up an hour earlier so I can practice in the early morning hours. And then the competition came and I played better than I ever played before. But I only got 16 out of 25 points <laughs> from a jury and nobody of them could play like even close to how I could play at that time. And at that time, I realized that classical music it's also very much about your connections. So I didn't have any of the connections. I didn't know anybody from the jury, which a lot of people who were in the classical music space at that time already told me, like, you have to build the connections. And I was incredibly frustrated for a long time after that because I had worked so hard and it was such a big failure. But that was the moment where I first thought, okay, maybe classical music is not for me and I want to do something different that is more about how good your music is instead of who are the people you know. That makes sense. And when did you kind of start diving into this electronic side? Because I imagine you didn't think of that, you know, day one after that concert, or maybe you did. No, it was something that developed slowly over time. I had been a huge fan of electronic music quite a while before so i went to love parade in berlin in the 90s stuff like that where it was huge at that time there were over a million people on the parade itself so that was crazy and i really enjoyed that kind of music oh there was another pivotal moment actually <laughs> we had this thing where you had to serve either in the military or you had to do like some social work for about a year when you were a man in germany at that time that was 2000, I think, if I remember. Yeah, 99, 2000, around that time. 
so I was doing the social work thing and the guy who was working there before me, he had a magazine about music production. I was just lying around there and I was just sitting there and I saw the magazine about music production. I just started reading the magazine and then found it really interesting and bought the magazine myself and bought another one. And over two months or so, I really realized like, oh, this could be something for me. Also because it included the technical aspect, which I really liked. I always liked like math and physics and all those things. Engineering, if you will, I was interested in that as well. And I thought like, okay, this might be a good combination. And then I had some money saved for my first car. And I didn't buy a car, but I bought like, I invested it in studio equipment and just started producing. I had no clue what I was doing <laughs> at all. It sounded horrible. <laughs> but yeah, that was the start. Mm, and I, I'm sure there was this span of time that was really difficult while you were getting into this. So can you talk to that? Yeah, I had an amazing start, which looked like this. I wanted to have my music played in the clubs. So what I did was I went into the clubs right when they opened, when nobody was there. So at 9 p.m., like usually people go out in Germany a lot, like 11, 12, they start going out. I was there at 9, nobody was there. I went to the DJ and gave him my CD and I said like, hey, can you try this? <laughs> can you play it? Because when you go there in the middle of the night, they're busy, right? But then nobody was there. So we're like, yeah, cool. Let me try it. So he put in the CD, he pressed play. I was surprised how different it sounded on a different system. <laughs> I was like, wait. <laughs> and then the guy who made the lights, he came over. And went to the DJ and like, what the heck are you playing? This sounds horrible. Oh, no. <laughs> I was standing right next to him. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, very glorious start. This was my first experience <laughs> playing my music to somebody else. And that was even like producing after three or four months. Yeah, so it took a while. So it took like, I, it took, I think, two years until I made my very first money. And it took another, I don't know, seven or eight years until I got to the point where I'm like, okay, I can make like a decent living from it. Mm, okay, yeah. And while you're kind of in that phase, were there pivotal people or pivotal moments in that time where you're like, no, I have to keep going? Was it all internal? How did you get over someone saying, oh, this sounds horrible right next to you? That was interesting. I think there was this point in time. I think at some point, I think I was just so fixated on it. I think it happened pretty fast. I think it happened when I moved to music because I found out that there you could study audio engineering. So I thought, like, okay, I have like the musical aspect, but I was really struggling with the production part. So the technical aspect, because I had like no clue whatsoever about anything. There was no YouTube or tutorials and all that stuff that didn't exist. So it was just, I had studio equipment, I did something and was like, okay, I don't know, what does this knob do? And I just turned it and tried to make something. Sound. And that was very ineffective, as you probably can imagine. <laughs> yeah, so I found out that you could study audio engineering in Munich, which was like five hours away from my hometown and I moved there to study audio engineering. I think at that time I really was so committed to do this that I completely stopped listening to anybody criticizing me and that was funny because at some point later a friend of mine told me he had so many people who tried to put him down and like he had so much resistance for his career and I said this is interesting because I never had this like nobody questioned if I would be successful with my music. And that evening, I lied in bed and I thought like, eh, it's really interesting that nobody ever told me that I would not be successful with my music. And then I thought like, wait a second. There was actually this one guy who really said I should do something else. And then I really said, oh, there's another one and another one. 
then all those <laughs> memories started coming to me and I just realized it didn't stick with me at all. It just went into the right ear and right out of the left ear just went through me. I just, whenever anybody said something to me like that, it just didn't stick at all. I was like, yeah, <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And eventually you got to the point where you were ghostwriting and working with other artists too. But there was a point where you're like, no, I, I have to do my own thing. And when was that shift for you? Because I think a lot of people would be in the state where they feel secure doing the thing that's bringing the money and it's less secure to go do your own thing. So I'm curious, how did you make that jump? Yeah, for me, so I started as like, I, like a side hustle. For me, it was more a personal, like the resistance was less about safety. It was more about being visible with my own music, right? Like, <laughs> very psychological thing. If you have a lot of people involved, you can always also blame other people, right? <laughs> so you have like different writers and labels and all those people, like which was really annoying me. But then again, you can blame it on those people. And when you see really say, okay, this is my music. I made it all by myself and I put it out all by myself. There's nobody left where you can say like, yeah, this guy messed up or this guy messed up. Like if it's not working, <laughs> it's my fault. It's like no, no sugarcoating it. <laughs> So I think this was the, the thing that mostly blocked me. And the moment, I think one very important part was that I, was, I moved to Los Angeles two years before, I think, and worked with a lot of different artists in the studio. And what happened was that some songs that I wrote, they sounded horrible, but they got released <laughs> on big labels because they were done with other producers who were big names. And in these, like, artist that were signed were in the studio so those songs got released and then other songs that i really liked i remember one specific song it just was named go and i loved it was a very unique combination of dubstep and pop if you will and what was really like forward thinking at the time everybody who heard it loved it but it never found any place like we sent it around but like nobody was really interested because it was just some producers made it and i was i didn't have any big name at that time so that combination, if you will, like seeing that one song getting released and the other song not getting released, really made me realize, okay, I should just release something myself and see what happens. And also very important was my wife. She kept encouraging me. She's always said, like, Chris, you're putting so much work and so much love into the music. You should be the artist. And she also saw how the songs were changed a lot. Like a song was good in the beginning and then the label said, Leah, let's do it. But... The A&R said, I want to have those changes. Or first, the artist said, I want to have those changes, which, which was legit. And then the management asked for changes. And then the label asked for changes. The A&R asked for changes. And then the president asked for changes. And in the end, you couldn't <laughs> like recognize the song anymore and sound horrible because everybody had an opinion. And I had just to like combine everything into one. Which So the, then the overall vision, to, like the vision I had for the song gets lost. It just becomes something completely different which makes no sense because there's like no one vision behind it where you're like, okay, this is what the song's supposed to feel. Like everybody feels something else. And you just mix it into one and there's no specific feeling left in the song anymore. Mm. 
And then you started releasing your own music and did one of the most unique things where you just gave it all away for free. You know, you still do that. You give so much of your music away. Anyone can use it so, like on YouTube or streams or anything like that. Was this the kind of deciding factor? You saw all these moving parts and all these decision makers that made decisions that honestly sometimes didn't make sense. Was that what inspired you to start doing that? Yeah, there was one of the elements. I also had a very specific thing that happened. I made a remix for a big artist. So I already had started releasing my own songs and started getting remix requests. So I made a remix for a big artist. And <laughs> it's always funny dealing with a label because they will hit you up like, hey, we need this remix within like two days. And so I would work like day and night just to get the remix finished, send it over. And they don't get back for two months. <laughs> you get no response. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah, or maybe they're like, yeah, thank you. We'll get back to you. And then you don't hear back. And then all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, you have to sign this today. So I signed it. And then I got a, a message from a fan. And she was like, yeah, I heard the song on this blog, but I can't find it anywhere. So I, I looked up the blog and the blog was from the UK. And it was like, yeah, this is great remix from the Fat Rat. You should listen to it. And I realized this blog was in the UK. And for some reason, the remix was already released in the UK. And the blog was writing about it. But people from all over the world started listening to, like, reading the blog and wanted to listen to the song. But it was only released in the UK, maybe a couple of other countries, but it was not released in the US. So more and more people from the US started hitting me up on, on Facebook back in that time, asking where they could find the song. And I would always have to say, like, I don't know. It belongs to the label. It's their thing. And I found this so annoying, this thing that, that people want to listen to the music, but they cannot because of some weird restrictions that are put in, in place for basically no reason, I think, just to make things more complicated. And also my own personal experience as a consumer, you want to watch a movie and you would love to pay for it, but it's just not available in Germany and stuff like that. It's just that I think like, hey, I just want my music to be free. If anybody wants to listen to it, I want this person to be able to listen to the song and just remove as many restrictions as possible. Mm. Now, there's this interesting mindset, though, that, you know, a lot of musicians, especially as they start to make a living or make money off of it, want to, you know, keep as many rights or everything as they can to themselves and not give their music away for free. You know, people should pay for it or, you know, there should be some sort of monetary gate to it. But you did the opposite. And I'm curious how that's benefited you. It's done amazing things for you, but I want to hear it from you. Sure. So one thing I think that's a different mindset is like one idea is to keep the rights yourself. And I think this makes a ton of sense because that allows you to give it away for free, right? As soon as you start giving the rights to somebody else who then controls the right, you're not allowed to give your song away for free anymore. I can start with one example right away, which is probably not the most obvious one. So after my music blew up on YouTube and SoundCloud and those things, I once again got a message on Facebook from a guy asking, hey, I'm making this new mobile game all by myself. I love your song. I would love to have your song in my mobile game. And I knew the situation of those guys because my brother at that time was also programming a mobile game. And I knew that often you, you work on it for like half a year or one year mm -hmm. and you put a lot of effort into it and you never know if it makes any revenue at all so i thought like hey i don't want to charge you for that and i said him you know what just use the music for free and if it ever blows up 
we can still talk about it like for some compensation. And probably a week or two later, I got another message with another guy in the same situation. And those messages kept coming in for like 10, 20, 30, 50 people. I said to them, hey, you can use the music if it ever blows up. We can talk about the compensation. And that went on for, I don't know, like three years maybe. And then somebody messaged me, a fan, and said, hey, this is a huge mobile game. And they have your music all <laughs> over it. So I reached out to them and asked them, hey, do you ever like you have my music all over your game? It's very music based. It's like a music rhythm game. Have we ever talked about you using my music? And then they said, yeah, we have this Instagram message from two years ago where we were like, yeah, can we use your music? And you're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> For now, you can use it. And they were very nice. They said, hey, if you wanted us to take out the music, we can do it immediately. And I said, no, you know what? Let's do this. You can use it another four months for free. But if you want to keep using it after it, because you have a lot of downloads by now and you're obviously making money, it would be nice if you would license it. And they said, yeah, sure, of course, we would be happy to license it. So now I'm just on this company licensing music on a yearly basis to them. They have several billion downloads <laughs> on their apps now. And yeah, making <laughs> very good money from that alone. And I have a couple of other situations like that now. And I'm sure it never would have happened if I would have started with a lot of people would just not answer. They would just say, yeah, I don't care about the small mobile game. They don't have a lot of money anyway. And probably it would have been right. If you have those small mobile games, they can pay you like, I don't know, 200 bucks maybe or something like that. They don't have any budget. So if you have that mindset, you just never get started with that. So it, it just opened a lot of doors for me. And then, of course, as background music in YouTube channels, like huge YouTube channels using it as outro music, for example. For example, there's this YouTuber has like 35 million subscribers, at least at the time when he posted the video. And he always used my music as an outro song, which drove a lot of traffic to my channel in the first place. And then he liked it so much, so he made a rap over it. And I think that <laughs> video alone has 150 million plays by now, which obviously also brought a lot of like traffic to the original song. Mm, that's awesome. Now, I'm curious, how do you kind of take all these fans, you know, they find you through these YouTube videos or streams or games or anything like that. They find out it's you, they listen to your music, and then what? You know, how do you kind of take them and make them into, you know, fans? How do they follow you? How do they, you know, listen to you more? That sort of stuff. Have you thought that through or is it just kind of <laughs> happening? <laughs> no. I could have thought it through so much better. <laughs> I'm horrible in, in that way. Yeah, seriously. That's also probably the reason I have like six point, I don't know, over six million subscribers on YouTube. I think 1.6 million followers on Spotify. And then I have 100,000 followers on Instagram. So you see how successful I am in, in, in that domain. <laughs> I'm really not good in that. But I think it would take some time and effort to do that. And I'm probably just not willing to invest that because I just enjoy making music way too much. And I also like to have a very relaxed life. I think the, the big luxury today is time. And I could invest a lot of time in social media and branding and all this kind of stuff. I just don't enjoy that that much. So I, I don't do it because it, it's, you know, it's enough. <laughs> I have recently reached over 900,000 Spotify plays in one single day. That was a new. So I'm approaching 1 million now. That's more than ever before. And I can make a very decent living out of that. 
So I don't care if I have only 100,000 followers on Instagram. <laughs> I love that mindset. And your focus seems to be just writing the music, whereas I see a lot of people who start to get into this uh, make a mistake or like, okay, I've written some music now to learn everything else. I'm going to learn social media. I'm going to learn animation. I'm going to learn, you know, I'm going to learn all these things. Whereas you've stayed very, very focused and you've managed to still build a very, very comfortable, very, very good living off of this. And I'm curious what you tell the up and coming producers, the up and coming composers who are just getting started. Maybe they've released a few tracks and now they're like, okay, now what do I do? Okay, I have to promote myself on social media. I have to, I have to do all these other things. Or should they kind of stay in their lane and just focus on the music? What do you kind of say to them? I don't think there's a right or wrong way for this. If you enjoy creating social media content, by all means, go for it. It's amazing. I think you're lucky if you really enjoy that. But ask yourself why you're doing it, right? I think if you make music because you love making music, you always win, right? If you make music because you want to be successful or you want to be rich and famous, it's going to be extremely frustrating, right? I think that's the big problem because you were asking about how do you overcome frustration. I didn't really have that much frustration in the first place because I loved making music, right? So I made a song. I loved the song. So there's not that much to be frustrated about it. Or I made a song and I hate the song. Then I can see what could I do better. I think if you make a song and you try to be successful and you put it out, it's not working, then it feels like you lose. It feels like, oh, this is a throwback. It feels like a failure and all those things. And then you have to overcome a completely different kind of frustration. I think the very most important thing to really, really connect with the reason you're, you're doing it. That makes sense. And I think a lot of people listening to this now who are kind of at the earlier stage might think like, oh, my God. Chris is doing all these things. He's, you know, got all these pieces of music out there that are generating revenue for him and he's able to live off of those and, you know, everything's going great. I've only been at this for one year. Why aren't I successful? And I want you to just mention how many years you've been at this because I think a common mindset is to think like, ah, oh, it's been two years. Why aren't I killing it? Yeah, I think you could, you should at least seven years of doing it full time and giving everything. This does not mean like after seven years you'll be successful, but if you really put yourself 100% to it, like you work on it as much as you can, trying to get better every day, then probably after seven years, I think you can expect some results. Yeah, that's been the case I've seen for many artists, including myself. There's this weird thing about seven years when things start to click. <laughs> yeah, it's probably if we would do the math would be with the 10,000 hour rules. Well, you probably have those after seven years, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You also write uh, library music as well, right? So that's a big chunk of your income, or at least part of it anyway. And I'm curious how you split all your time up and how you kind of broke into the world of library writing as well. I'm actually not doing it anymore, just because my own music is more fun mm -hmm. and pays way better. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but that was one of the things that I did when I started. And that was one of the first things where I would generate some income from music just because one of the guys uh, who was in my class when I studied audio engineering, he ended up being an A&R for this library. And I was talking to him for, I don't know, two or three years about like, I would like to make some music for that. And he was like, wait for it. I will be in the position one day. And then, yeah, after three years, he was there and I started producing for it. And yeah, that was very solid. It was also very long term once again. 
So I would submit the music and then the first money would come in like one year later or one and a half years later. It's just very slow. But then it starts generating revenue. And that was really a great feeling when you just have this passive income rolling in and you don't feel that stressed anymore because you know, okay, money's coming anyway. And I can just focus on making great music and I don't have to worry too much about what's going to happen one month or two months or the next year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, that's the dream for a lot of people, definitely. And I'm wondering then with, you know, all these different avenues and all these different things that you've tried and done, and I'm sure you've written music in many, many styles, especially when starting that maybe didn't work out or maybe didn't get released or anything like that. So I'm curious, a lot of artists I've heard ask me like, okay, how do I find my style? How do I find my voice? Because the fat rat has a sound, you know, there's a style to it. And how does that come about for you? How did you think about that? Or was there any thought at all and you just wrote what you liked? Or how did that work? So I'm doing this Q&A with my fans every week. Right now it's paused, taking a summer break, but usually I have a lot of up-and-coming producers there asking me questions. And I often get two questions that kind of contradict each other. So the one question is like, does what you ask, hey, I want to find my own style. And then the other question I get probably as often is, oh, I'm making this music, but it doesn't fit anywhere. How can I make it fit? And the weird thing is those two are just like contradicting each other because that's kind of what you're going for is music where you're like, oh, this, this really doesn't like this. I don't know what this is. <laughs> I also have the same situation when people ask me, what's your genre, the genre you're producing? I'm always like, I don't know. It's That's not my business deciding for a genre. So yeah, I think it's just the self-discovery thing, maybe. It's also a lot of practice. Mm -hmm. And then it's embracing your weirdness. <laughs> so yeah, so so maybe let's start with the weirdness. It's often the the thing where you feel like, it's too personal to share or it's the kind of music you secretly like but you're afraid to show anybody. <laughs> <laughs> the stuff that you, probably you want to hide, you feel a little bit almost like shame for it. That's usually the gold. And for me, it was also when I wrote Unity, I thought this is way too, I don't know, too over the top. <laughs> and for those who don't know Unity, it has like 250 million plays on YouTube, I think, now. And I think that's just way too much. I never could release this. And <laughs> it was the case with quite a few songs that ended up extremely successful, where the ones were, when I first had the idea and put the idea down and I listened back, I was like, I could never release this. And then it was often my, I played to my wife. She's like, this is amazing. You should put it out. And I was like, <laughs> okay, maybe play to a couple of other people. And then those people, I said, like, yeah, this is amazing. You should put it out. And then, okay, maybe I should dare. But I think it's often there. It's this thing where you feel probably a little bit, I don't know, weird. It feels too personal. It feels like a little bit, you're giving too much from yourself. And maybe it also feels too weird. Maybe you listen to my song Unity and imagine you wrote it and you press play and you're like, oh, I just wrote this and you never heard it before. How would this feel? So this is the one is, uh, thing. Then it's just a lot of practice. It's like your signature, right? You learn writing. And you do it over and over again. And if you write your name like a thousand times, it becomes so specific that it's literally your signature because nobody else can copy it. It's just very personal. Yeah, I think it also comes from producing tons and tons of music, just like writing. You, you, you don't start writing and then you have a specific signature. It comes from writing a couple of years. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And when it comes to practicing, you know, music production, a lot of it can be, you know, really clear or a lot of it can be really vague. You know, sometimes you're just staring at your DAW being like, I don't know what's wrong with this, but something is wrong. Or sometimes, you know, oh, these vocals are not compressed enough. Like sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's not. And I'm curious how you approach that practice, how you recommend people approach that practice as they're learning. Yeah, I try to do this very consciously. It's exactly that process that you describe. I make something and then I try to ask myself exactly what's missing. I would never start technically. I would start with the emotion, always with the emotion. Like, okay, how does it feel like? And also, like, try to feel your body while you're listening to the music. And sometimes I realize that I'm a little, like, tight with shoulders or something. <laughs> or my grip around the mouth is a little tight and stuff like that. And I know, okay, then something's off, right? And then try to understand why that is. So I think it's listening to your body really helps a lot. Huh, that's, uh, that's advice I've never heard before. I love that. <laughs> the next step is to find out where it comes from. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. I like that. And throughout all of this, there's a through line between everything you've said so far, and there's no point where you said, and then I signed to Sony. <laughs> you know, there's no <laughs> point where you said that. And that's a very unique. A lot of people, that's their dream, right? Their dream is to get their music on a major label so it can be distributed or they can get more promotion or whatever it may be, but that was not the case for you. And I want to hear your decision behind not doing that on top of the distribution in general, like you mentioned earlier. Yeah. No, actually, I signed to immediately, but only for like a couple of songs. I was very hesitant back then. My management talked me kind of into it. They were like, yeah, we really should do it. And I thought I, I already had a lot of experience with major signed artists as a producer and knew which problem they ran into after being signed to a major label. So I was very hesitant, but then ended up being like, okay, let's give it a shot. And then kind of had exactly what I expected. It, do it doesn't feel bad in the first place. The, the biggest problem is they just take a huge chunk of your money before you get paid, right? And I see a lot of people today complaining, oh, you make so little money from streams. And I always think this is just not true. I also have streams and I'm making very decent money off it. Like I could live with 10% of the streams that I have today or 5% of the streams. So you don't have to be my size to make a living of it could be way less. I think if you have like 100,000 to 200,000 uh, monthly listeners on Spotify, you should already be able to make a good living from it if the songs belong to you. So that's the big problem. So I think this is really important to know where this image about the lab major labels comes from, that they're so important that they're like the hit makers. It's really important to realize that till the early 2000s, there was no YouTube, there was no iTunes, there was no social media. So the only way to get your music listened to was to be on the radio, to be on the CD shelves. Or you could play live shows, right? But have it available worldwide. And so you had to produce and also music production was very important. So what the labels would do, they would look for artists, they would sign them, they would put them into the studio, which cost like, producing an album was a few hundred thousand dollars because you had to use very expensive gears because you just couldn't do it on a MacBook. And then you had to print CDs, like thousands of CDs, and then you had to ship those CDs into the stores. And this was virtually impossible for an independent artist. Uh, and then you, you had to place the music on radio and MTV and those things so people would hear it, which was also virtually impossible for an independent artist. And that's why like being signed to a major label it just opened the door that you could have a hit song, which was pretty much impossible 
with automated label. So I think this still resonates in people's heads today. So they think, oh, major label is the big deal. But if you look at it, like usually they would sign songs that are already produced. They're completely out of the production process, right? Because you don't need a tape machine for and a, a mixing desk for 1.5 million. You just do it on your MacBook Air for a thousand bucks, right? You can even <laughs> do more than equipment from back then can do, could do. And then you distribute it. I think like, I don't know, DistroKids like $11 for worldwide distribution right <laughs> and then you promote it where do you promote it? you promote it on social media and it's all about the creativity you don't have to shoot an expensive music video with like for a hundred thousand dollars you just make a smart tiktok clip and what i really experienced myself and i have so many other artists that experienced it you sign to major label and pretty much nothing happens they do something yeah they do a little bit but you're giving away like 80 percent of your revenue and they're adding maybe 10% of streams maybe with their promotion because they also they don't know if you really ask them what they can do if you really dig into them because recently my song last year my song Xenogenesis blew up on TikTok went viral so they once again they came and we really asked hey what can you do and in the end it was like (laughs) (laughs) it was really (laughs) because usually when you start they're like yeah we're going to make a great strategy and we're going to grow it da, 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 da. And we, okay what are the actions that you're going to take and then they tr- repeated this a couple of times we kept asking okay what are the actual actions that you're going to do and we ended up with okay we can do a little bit of radio promotion that's it <laughs> and then try and find your bigger artist but that, that was about it if you really dig into it but they're not going to tell you this when you're a new artist they will tell you like hey we have this amazing artist and we did this artist and we have this they have billions of plays and we make you your own strategy and everything will we cater to you da 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 they tell you a lot of stuff they always evade the questions of what the actual actions they're going to take are so they just have a lot of leverage that they had 20 years ago it's just not existent anymore because you can do it just as good yourself yeah, so this is really, really important for every, everybody to know, especially when you have a song blowing up. That's the most important thing. If you, especially if you have a song that's blowing up, never give it away. Never, ever give it away. If your song's blowing up on TikTok or YouTube or anywhere, the major labels will come because they're monitoring all the social media automatically. And so they, have, they get a ping <laughs> if you have like an unexpected increase, like if one musician has an unexpected increase in followers or streams and anything, their systems show it. Maybe some people care there, but maybe they don't. So they, they go by the numbers and, like, okay, this is blowing up. And they usually step in before the artist gets the first royalties because the royalties they lag behind for like two or three or four months. So the artists don't even see the royalties they're getting, right? They blow up and like three days later, they get the calls from the major. And one week later, they are signed. And the song gets transferred to the major and they get only... 20% of the revenue or maybe 15% of the revenue and, it, and everything gets deducted. So they deduct the promotion, they deduct the music video, everything. And then the artist complains, oh, I get no money from streams. But that's not the fault of Spotify or Apple Music. That's because you are giving away effectively maybe 90% of your revenue. Mm, yeah, I was going to ask what the percentage was. So it is around most of it, it sounds like. Yeah, a friend of mine recently got a, a deal offer well, he would get 6% of the revenue and the label would keep 94%. Oh, my God. Yeah. But that was for a TV show. That was The Voice. Ah, uh, sure. But they make this kind, of, this kind of deals. And you're, like, completely tied. Like, it's crazy. Mm. It's really crazy. Yeah. 
he ended up not signing it, which was very smart. Good. <laughs> so do you uh, tend to advise newer artists then, like, when the major labels come at you with that glitz and say, like, oh, we're going to make this strategy to kind of be very wary of that? Yeah, always. Very intensely. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, oh, I, I talked alone. Like, they didn't say a word for about an hour. And I was just screaming at them. Maybe not quite <laughs> as much, but something like that, because I'm very passionate about it. See, I was very lucky. I, a lot of the songs that ended up being very successful belonged to me. Mm -hmm. But I gave away a couple of songs. So I also have that experience where I have the comparison. Plus, I know a lot of people who have been signed to majors. So I know a lot of problems that they run into. And yeah, it's especially when you have a successful song. Uh, so I also want to clarify, it could be different. If you're just famous on TikTok and you have like no put out no music ever, and a major approaches you, probably give it a shot. It's probably, it doesn't hurt you because you, you're not losing a lot, right? So they will put you in the studio with producers and put it out and like, they would also invest more in that case. But it's a different situation when you already have a successful song that then the last thing you want to do is get any label involved. And if you were up and coming, if you were just starting, independent labels can make a lot of sense if they have a big fan base themselves. Then that can also make sense, yeah. Now, you have this beautiful setup, you have all this music coming out, people are listening to it, people are streaming it, people are using it in their videos. Now I'm curious what you're learning, what's your kind of mountain you're climbing or what you're focusing on? Is it just writing more music? Is there something else? One thing what, that we're doing at the moment is always plan to do is hire people that really work for us. If I talk about we, that's my wife. She's doing the management part and she's been doing it for, I don't know, four years now, I think. So I have like a loose team of people who work for me, but they're not exclusively working for me. So I want to hire a couple of people also maybe to be more active on social media and stuff like that. Because right now, if you see any post, like I did everything, like I set up the light, I pressed record on the camera, I was in front of the camera obviously but then i edited everything and like even did the captions myself and all this stuff that's one of the reasons why, why i'm not doing a lot of stuff on social media for example and my wife's really busy with the distribution and everything and we would, would like to focus more on creative things so this is something that i'm tapping into right now it's just yeah building a team and that besides just focusing on making better music mm-hmm I love that. Yeah, and that'll give you more time to write that music when you hire that team. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, because also music is just moving forward. If I would do the same thing that I did like two years ago, it's also not exciting for me anymore. I always listen to what other part artists are doing, of course, but not to see like, oh, I want to be contemporary, just to get inspired, right? It's just you hear something and all of a sudden it could be like the smallest artist ever, but I'm like, oh, this is a great idea. This could be something that I could build upon. And yeah, because I constantly want to develop my own music, I think it would be really boring for me if I did the exact same thing that I did a year ago. That makes sense. Now, a question that I ask everyone who comes on here as we start to wind down is when you started out, and that could be when you're playing piano and more in the classical or jazz world, when you started out in the music uh, kind of side of your life, how did you define success and how has that changed over time and how do you define it now? Good question. I really early had the vision of making worldwide number one hits, which is the opposite probably of what I said before. It's like, do it because you love it. <laughs> but success to me is like the more streams, the, the more success. <laughs> Very simple. 
And I think maybe that might also be different because I think it's not functional to only say, hey, I want my music to have a nice vibe. Because almost every artist I know that talks like that has like very little streams. <laughs> maybe there are exceptions to it, but maybe some people won't admit it as well because I think it doesn't sound as sexy. I think it sounds sexy to say, oh, I only do the music that I like. But I also want my music to be heard by a lot of people. And I love making music, but I also love making music that resonates with people. So yeah, for me, success is streams. When I started, it would have been like sales or charts, but today it's just streams. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you can you know very objectively see how many people you're reaching with those streams, so that makes sense. Now, as a last question, as we wind down, where can people find you? Social media, Spotify, any of that stuff? Feel free to promote it. Yeah, very simple. If you just search for the fat rat, it's written in one word, but you probably find it uh, when you just put in "fat rat" on Google, YouTube, Spotify. Instagram, where I said, like, I have only 100,000 followers, so please follow me as well. <laughs> no, listen to it on, on Apple Music or Deezer or Spotify, if you will. I just search for Fat Rat or The Fat Rat in one word, and you can find me there. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. I think people are going to get a lot out of this. Thank you so much for having me. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash soundbizpod. Sound, B-I-Z, pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects that'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. And if you're looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to, this podcast is actually a part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. So if you want to check those out, hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.